Amen. Hey, thank you. Well, hey everyone, I'm Janet B. Recovered from Compulsive Eating and Bulimia. Let me join my welcome to Deanne's. Happy to be all together on a Thursday night. And I'm going to talk about um, Bill's story. So a story we've all probably read a dozen times or so. And I just read it one time and I went through looking at um, all the different things that he tried that didn't work. And I find like we could make a list of them. And I think they're like nine or 10. So I'll go through. And if I get the numbering wrong, I'm sure someone will tell me. Um, so Bill did a whole bunch of things that didn't work until he finally did the one thing that did work, which was get a relationship with God. But until we get to that good stuff, um, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on his illness because I want to get to the miracle part. So if you have your book, Bill opens the story on page one. And oh, the meeting on the workshop, if you scroll up to the top of the chat, the meeting, um, the information is in there. Um, so page one, Bill talks about going to war. And he says, I was part of life at last. In the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. And later on, he says, I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. I was lonely and again turned to alcohol. So here's a couple of things that didn't help him. One, changing circumstances. Things were really bad and he just turned to alcohol when he was lonely. And then he said, I was part of life at last. It was hilarious, exciting, and I discovered alcohol. So if we think changing our circumstances is going to help us recover, it probably won't, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine someone with cancer saying, I think I'll move from New York to Los Angeles. That will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. But of course it won't. We take our illness with us. So the second thing he said is, I forgot the strong warnings I had heard. He forgot, right? I mean, when I was younger, someone said to me, look both ways before you cross the street, because if you don't and a truck hits you, you're going to be roadkill. I'm going to remember that, right? I'm going to look both ways before I cross the street. Or if I have pneumonia and the doctor says to me, make sure to take this antibiotic twice a day, I'm going to remember that. But something is important um, as alcohol says, and the dangers of it, Bill says he forgot the warnings. Why? Well, we've talked about this before. And for people like us, when it comes to alcohol or food or anything like that, it doesn't, um, we can't remember. We lose the ability to remember. The connection between our memory and our conscious mind is broken. So he might have heard alcohol is bad for you a hundred times, but when he wanted to take a drink, that warning, alcohol is bad. You'll have one drink and you won't be able to stop. It's there in his memory. It can't make it to his conscious mind to stop him. Strong warnings of other people never did anything for us. So there's Bill. He goes to war. He comes back from war and he goes to law school. And what happens? He says, at one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. 
I went to law school myself. And in law school, in most classes, 100% of your grade is based on that one final exam. That's it. You have a bad day. You can flunk a class that you were paying attention in the entire semester. So this exam is pretty important. So I would say that number three, something he tried is necessity. It was necessary that he be sober during his exams and it didn't help because necessity doesn't help us, right? If I said, well, I need to lose weight so I can fit into the dress when I go to, you know, my son's wedding next month. It's just an example. My son is still in college. He is not getting married. Um, but if I said that I need to lose weight, I have to, or I need to because the doctor told me I have high blood pressure and need to. True story. My husband, about 20 years ago, the doctor said, you have high blood pressure. You need to lose about, I don't know, 15 pounds. So my husband went on a diet, lost the 15 pounds, and that's it. He's kept it off. If the number on the scale ever creeps up a pound or two, he'll just do this weird thing called cutting back. And then he's fine. Um, necessity works for normal people, not for people like us. Um, you know, it's like I needed to stop binging. It was ruining my life. I couldn't get out of bed. I was no, I knew I was ruining my health. It didn't matter. Necessity doesn't work for people like us. So Bill finishes law school and says, yeah, this law thing's not for me. I want to do business instead. So there he went. Life was really good for a while. And then what happened? The stock market crashed and things got bad. But he was okay for a bit. Page four, we hear him say, I was determined to win again. And the next morning, I called a friend in Montreal and went to Canada. So again, he's trying a geographic. He's able to stop for a little bit until page five, where it says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. So at some point, maybe we could have stopped, but page 24 tells us that we cross a line where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. We need it. Um, me, personally, by the age of four, I couldn't have stopped. But here was Bill. Liquor is a necessity. And once we cross the line where it's a necessity, not like my daughter, who she could, you know, have a bad night and eat a pint of ice cream. And the next day she's back to like eating normal again, right? She hasn't crossed the line. But once we cross the line, we can't save ourselves anymore. We need to be rescued. Bill talks about being in quicksand or an undertow. We can't rescue ourselves once we cross the line. So poor Bill, he says things got worse. He lost his house. I mean, think about it. We've probably read that a million times, but just like he lost his house. That's a big friggin' deal to lose your house. Um, but Bill, you know, he keeps his chin up and he says, but I got this great business opportunity. Everything's going to work. And he says, but then I went on a prodigious bender. I actually don't know what the word prodigious means. I'm assuming it means something like really bad. So a really bad bender. 
and the chance vanished. So here he is. And what does he do? He says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. So he knew his alcoholic threshold. It's like we know our alcoholic foods, right? It doesn't do it. He knew his alcoholic threshold, which was zero. He could not have one drink. He said, I was through. I had written lots of sweet promises before, but my wife happily observed this time I meant business. And so I did. So here's, I think, the fourth thing he's tried, commitment, really meaning business. Well, that doesn't help. Let's go back to our poor cancer patient um, who's got cancer cells that are multiplying away. And he says, okay, I am committed to making my cancer cells stop multiplying. Our hearts would break because we would know that no matter how sincere that person was, they couldn't do it. Um, they don't have the power. Collip commitment alone doesn't do it because lack of commitment isn't our problem. Lack of power is our problem. So what happens to poor Bill? He means business, but he keeps getting drunk. And he says, I began to wonder if I was crazy, bottom of page five, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that, a lack of perspective, thinking I can do things that time and time again, I should know that I can't do, right? For me, I sometimes think I have the knees of a 20-year-old, so I'll go to the gym and I'll just do like really heavy squats and leg presses, and I'll come home and have to ice my knee and put on this really like uncomfortable little woolen bracy thing that just keeps my knee in place and not work out in a while because I'm not 22, I'm 62 and I can't work out like I'm 22. And sometimes I still have a lack of perspective at the gym, but it's not dire. I rest my knee for a few days and then I'm fine, but not so with Bill. His lack of perspective was dire. So what happens? Page six. One day he goes into a cafe to use a telephone. Not really smart. It's like um, someone who's newly abstinent walking into haagen to use the phone. And so here I would say um, he really wasn't on guard. Imagine going, the payphone is all the way at the back of the haagen We've lost our cell phone and it's like, I'll just walk through here. I have five minutes of abstinence, but I'll be okay. Well, I know how I would have been. And what happens to Bill? He gets drunk. But being a good addict, what does he tell himself? I'll manage better next time but I may as well get good and drunk now. So number five, what I call the pillow cure, I'll do whatever I want now because I'll be able to start tomorrow. Eight hours with my head on a pillow and that will suddenly give me the power I didn't have before. So the pillow cure or the I'll start tomorrow syndrome, it doesn't work. What happened the next day? Bill sees like, alas, his pillow is just a normal pillow and not one, you know, covered in fairy dust. And he says, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning were unforgettable. You know, normally remorse, horror, and hopelessness will convince us we shouldn't do something again. Um, I grew up in Miami Beach. 
I had the experience of going to the beach and not putting on sunscreen because I just wanted a cute little tan. And then to my horror, instead of being this, you know, adorable bronze color, my skin was peeling off. I was bright red, itchy, in pain. And guess what? The next time I went to the beach, I had sunscreen with me because I didn't want to go through that again. But for an alcoholic or a compulsive eater, remorse doesn't help. Well, what's remorse? Strong guilt doesn't do it. What's horror? We, we look at ourselves like we're gaining weight. We're throwing up all the time. And we feel like, I, I can't believe this. What am I turning into? It doesn't do it. And hopelessness, hopelessness alone doesn't do it. The only time hopelessness is good is if at the moment someone is hopeless and they really get it that they are hopeless, not just for today, but for good and all. And then someone presents them with a solution. But plain old feeling hopeless and horrified and remorseful really just ends up with us feeling self-pity. And my friend Roxanne said years ago, self-pity parties usually end with a cake. So Bill keeps this up for two more years, two years. He steals from his wife. Can you imagine? Steals from his own wife. She had to go to work because he lost the house because of drinking and he's stealing from her. He tries all sorts of things. He goes into a hospital. Page seven, he says, when he came out, he says, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For a few months, the goose hung high. Again, I don't really know what that expression means, the goose hung high. I assume it meant things were going just fine. And Bill says, I went to town regularly, even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So two things here. Bill had a desire, but desire without spiritual help doesn't work. Our cancer patient has a desire for her cancer cells to stop multiplying. Desire alone doesn't work. Then Bill says, this was the answer, self-knowledge. Well, we can add that to our list. Self-knowledge doesn't work. I could know I had cancer. In fact, I could know exactly how I got it. People generally don't, but let's say I live near a toxic radiation waste site and end up with cancer. Okay, so what? Now I know why I have it. It doesn't make it go away. Self-knowledge doesn't help. In page eight, we see again, now we can add to remorse, horror, and hopelessness. We can add loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And how does Bill describe his bottom? He says, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And he still didn't stop. So here's the next thing on our list. A first step alone does nothing. Wait, what? That's right. I can admit I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. That ad admission alone gets me nowhere if I just stop there, right? Our cancer patient says, I admit I have cancer and my life is unmanageable. You imagine if her doctor said, great, now that you've admitted that you really know you have cancer and that your life is unmanageable, now you'll be able to go home and make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Mm -mm. 
that admission is only good if she says to her doctor, okay, I believe I really have cancer. Now, what do I do? What's my treatment? But without that, a first step alone is nothing. And then next thing on our list, Bill says, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit, but then he drank again. So the next thing on our list is fear, right? A doctor telling us if we don't lose weight, we're going to have a heart attack. That doesn't do it. Um, you may have heard me say, I met a woman once at an OA convention who was diabetic. And the doctor told her if she didn't stop eating compulsively and lose some weight, it would affect her eyes and her kidneys. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind and she was on dialysis waiting for someone to donate a kidney to her. Fear doesn't do it, um, right? Back to our cancer patients. Someone says, you know, if you don't make your cancer cells stop multiplying, you're going to die. I mean, whoever then said, oh, I'm glad you gave me that information. And now that I'm really scared, yep, now I'll be able to make my cancer cells stop multiplying. That never happens because fear doesn't do it. Fear isn't from God. In fact, fear, if anything, is from the other team, right? The big book says fear is an evil and corroding thread. It's not from God, so it can't help. So here's poor Bill, right? He's tried everything. And he just says, everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. But then look at the turn of the story, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch, my last binge. He says, I was soon to be catapulted. I love that word catapulted, not I took myself. I was catapulted. I was rescued. He says, I was catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. And to me, it always reminds me of the Wizard of Oz, the moment when it goes from black and white to color. Life becomes in color. So before, at the top of this page, he had loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And what does he have now? Happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Because just like this illness is progressive, recovery is progressive. So once we get into recovery and start living this way of life, it just keeps getting better. So let's find out how it happened, how God launched his search and rescue mission for Bill Wilson. Let's set the scene. It's November. So probably just a little bit of a chill in the air. Bill sitting in his kitchen, drinking and thinking as he's sitting there, how am I going to keep drinking? And the phone rings. And an old friend, an old drinking buddy says, hey, Bill, can I come over? Now, Bill was in New York at this time. His friend did not live in New York. It had been years since he had been in New York. But Ebby just happened, I say with air quotes, he just happened to be in New York. And he just happened to call Bill and say, hey, Bill, can I come over? And Bill's like, sure. He doesn't care about Abby. 
he just he's thinking great we can drink together my old drinking buddy i don't have to drink by myself it's an oasis this is wonderful so remember bill is drinking and he's planning on drinking more when ebby comes and ebby didn't knock on his door and say bill you know you're drinking i'll come back when you have x number of days or hours sober and by the way when bill went to meet up with dr bob Dr. Bob was also drunk and planning on staying drunk. And Bill didn't say, I'll meet with Bob when he's sober X number of hours. So Abby went in, talked to Bill, looked at him, and Bill's like, okay, something's different. And he said, come on in. And he did, of course, what any good alcoholic host would do. He pours him a drink, pushes it across the table. But Abby says, no. And Bill says, okay, what's got into this guy? He's not himself. He doesn't look like himself. He doesn't act like himself. But of course, a butterfly doesn't look or act like a caterpillar anymore. Ebby had been transformed. God isn't in the fix it up a little bit business. God is in the transformation business, caterpillar to butterfly stuff. So Bill says, okay, what's going on? And Bill just says simply, I've got religion. No sugarcoating God. So let's be clear what the definition of religion is. It's the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So when we say God as I understand him, it's not doorknob as I understand him or light bulb as I understand him. Because the definition is the belief in a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. Now, I might conceive of God differently than you conceive of God, but I think we can agree that a light bulb is not a superhuman controlling power that can be personal to us. So Ebby didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't dummy it down so that it would appeal to Bill, and he didn't give God some pet name. He just said, I've got religion. And Bill's reaction, he says, I was aghast. Like, what the heck? Before he was an alcoholic crackpot, now he's a religious crackpot. And he's like, but whatever, let him rant. My booze is going to outlast his words. But Ebby didn't rant. He just quietly said he'd been drunk, so drunk, he was about to be committed for alcoholism. And two men showed up in court and persuaded the judge to suspend his commitment. And one of the men who persuaded the judge was a recovered alcoholic. And the judge just happened to be his uncle. And they said, judge or uncle, um, give us a little time. We know what can help him. A combination of two things, a simple religious idea. There's that word. Imagine they use that word in court a simple religious idea, and a practical program of action. Simple religious idea, belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God, and a practical program of action. Surrender, clean house, clean up our past, help others. They said that was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked two months. I mean, I've heard some people say sometimes, well, you know, I was told I can't sponsor until I've been abstinent X number of days. Um, They didn't do that. 
There they gauged it by, have you gone through the process? Early on, they didn't have 12 steps like they did now. First, they did things in the Oxford group, and then they had like six steps. Um, but had you gone through the basic process of surrendering your life to God, cleaning up the wreckage of your past, committing to help others, and living a life of prayer, meditation, and service? And it worked. Um, fast forward only 60 days, and here's Ebby thinking, who can I help? Um, I'm in New York in business. Let me call Bill. Two months. So anyone, if you're binging now and you start working on this today, you can be recovered and helping others before Independence Day. Before the end of June, you can be helping others. You can be knocking on someone's door, carrying a message of hope. You can be the butterfly. So Bill reports that Ebby said he'd come to pass his experience on if he, Bill, cared to have it. And Bill said, I was shocked, but I was interested. And then here's what he says, top of page 10. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. So someone comes around and they don't feel hopeless. It's like, yeah, you know, I'd like to like lose 10 pounds for my high school reunion. So that boy who dumped me when I was 17 will feel bad. Now they're probably not going to be interested because this program is a lot of work. Um, but when someone is hopeless and we want them to feel hopeless, um, we don't want to tell people, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. You know what? It doesn't get better. I was going to meetings when I first came around and I was throwing up maybe twice a week. Six and a half years later, in Overeaters Anonymous, I was throwing up up to six times a day and I needed major surgery on my esophagus. It didn't get better just by going to meetings. For me, it got worse um, and because the solution wasn't meetings. Meetings are only good if they give you correct information, but I had to go home and apply that information. Um, so here's Bill and Ebby's talking to him about God and Bill's like, yeah, I've always believed in a power greater than myself. I've often pondered these things. You know, we sit around pondering, right? Um, he says he wasn't an agnostic, but when it came to a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mouth, my mind snapped shut. So he believed in God, but not a personal God. So he was what I would say a practical agnostic. And that's how I was. I believed in God, but it made no difference in my life. It's like, um, I believe there's a king in England, but it makes no difference in my life. I mean, I suppose if I move to England or Britain or, sorry, don't want to offend anyone across the pond, um, it might make a difference in my life. But now it doesn't make a difference that there's a king in England. Sure, I'll believe that there is, but it doesn't really matter. So I was like, Bill. I always believed in God, but I wasn't really interested in anything he had to say to me. In fact, I didn't think he would even have anything to say to me. So that was Bill's position. But how did Ebby describe God to Bill? Love, superhuman strength and direction. We need all of that. If God is just power and direction, but doesn't love me, how am I ever going to feel safe with that God? And if God is love and direction, but doesn't have power, well, that doesn't do me any good. And if God loves me and has power, but isn't direction, 
then he's not going to give me the guidance I need. But our God is all three, love, superhuman strength, and direction. That's the God that we get access to through this program. And Ebby talks about the role religion played, um, or Bill talks about the role that religion played in his life. And he said, yeah, I adopted those parts, parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. And isn't that how a lot of us, if we're going to be really honest, use religion or use these 12 steps? We'll do the parts that are convenient and not too hard. And yeah, we don't really need to do the rest. So Bill had to start doing some soul searching. He was saying, okay, I want to believe in God, but there's things that get in the way. He had legitimate things he had to deal with. Remember, he'd been to war. So he said the war, the burnings, right? Like, can we imagine what that means? Burning, like seeing whole towns and cities being burned down, you know, chicanery, another word, I don't quite know what it means, but it doesn't sound good. Um, he said, these things made me sick. He says, judging from what I've seen in Europe and since the power of God in human affairs was negligible. It, and then he says, if there was a devil, he seemed the boss. So Bill had witnessed a lot of calamity and he was stuck. Like, why is there all that suffering? I mean, he earnestly questioned it. And what did Ebby do? He didn't do what I probably would have done, which was, you know, get into this like deep theological debate about, well, does God cause suffering or does he only allow it? And does he do it to refine this or do that? Um, Bill, Ebby's way smarter than I am. He didn't do any of this stuff. He just basically says, Bill, I don't know. All I know is that God is good. And when I surrendered my life to him, the obsession to drink was just lifted out of me. Imagine that, lifted out. And by the way, that was my experience when I surrendered. It was like a hand reached into my soul and lifted out the obsession. Um, and I think the way Bill dealt with it, the way Ebby told him to, I guess that's how we can deal with certain things that we don't like. Um, like for me, it's like, why, God, do you allow human trafficking? That breaks my heart. Like, why doesn't God just smite all the traffickers with a plague of boils? I don't know. I don't know on a personal level why my dad suffered with Parkinson's and that after my mom nursed him through it until his death, she got stricken with Alzheimer's. I don't know. Um, but I'm okay with not knowing this side of heaven. Hopefully then I will but not now. God's got a plan and it's okay if I don't understand it. So what does Ebby do? He simply tells Bill God did for him what he couldn't do for himself. He said he had admitted defeat and after admitting defeat, he had been raised from the dead, right? Isn't that us in the illness? like walking dead people. That's how I felt. Like if I were to show my picture, I would, you know, go to that, what's that TV show? The Walking Dead and try and find one of those people. And that would be me, The Walking Dead. Um, and then Ebby said, he was suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. He was rescued, rescued from the scrap heap to a life full of meaning. 
it doesn't do us any good to just be rescued from if we're not taken to something else. Then we're just going to go back. God rescues us from and takes us to. And he says, had this power originated in me? Obviously, it had not. On page 55, it tells us, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. We all have this idea of God inside of us. We may say we don't, um, but it's like I've said before, I may say I have no lungs, that I'm a lung agnostic. Guess what? I have lungs. And this book is telling us that when God created us, he placed the idea of himself inside our hearts. We have the idea of God, but we're not God. God is a separate entity. And he said, I had no power. There was no power in me, but there was a power I could access. And that's all I need. I don't generate electricity myself, but I can access it. And that's good enough. I don't need to be God and I don't need to be electricity. Um, so remember, Bill was hopeless and that allowed him to be open-minded. And he's like, maybe these religious people are right after all, because Ebby, he's not the same Ebby. And he says, I love this line. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. And great tidings means good news. So when we think of miracles, I think we generally think of things like Moses parting the Red Sea, you know, something like that. And Bill saying, yeah, that's all in the past. That's good and well for Sunday school, but it doesn't help me stop drinking. But here's a miracle directly across my kitchen table. A man who was once one way and now is another way. That's the kind of miracle I can be interested in. Um, so he saw that Ebby was totally different. On page 12, he said, his roots grasped a new soil. It's like he had a root transplant. He had become a different person, but he's still not sure. You know, he's still a little prickly about God. And his friend says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And he said, that did it. He said, all I had to do was be willing. Nothing more is required of me to make a beginning. So willing to believe there's a God. Okay, what does that mean? In practical terms, how can we be willing and make a beginning? And I think it, we can do something like this. We can say, God, I don't know if you exist. I hope you do. And if you exist and you do care about me, like these people say, I really need some help. And in the meantime, I'm going to live my life the way I think you would want me to. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to help others. And I'm going to hope and pray that you are real. And if you are, please show me and please help me. Willingness. So we can be willing to believe that there's a God who can restore us to sanity. And Bill says, I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. Well, what do we mean by enough? Enough to do the work, not sit there and say, God, okay, I'm willing to believe you exist. Now come out of your bottle where you exist, be my genie, do whatever I want, and then go back in your bottle until I need you again. Uh-uh. We have to be willing to do the work. And how does Bill describe it? 
He says, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. He says, you know, how blind I had been because what blinded him to spiritual truth, pride and prejudice. They were like scales across his spiritual eyes. So what's pride? Thinking too much of myself or thinking of myself too much and prejudice, thinking too little of others and thinking of others too little. And then he says, yeah, I remember when I was younger, I needed and wanted God and God came. I really sensed his presence, but it was blotted out by worldly clamors. So if we want to block out God, all we have to do is become too concerned with things, um, our clothes, our jobs, our kids' futures, um, things like that. Worldly clamors instead of spending time with our loving creator. And then Bill went to the hospital. Why? Why did he go? He said, I showed signs of delirium tremors. That's why he went to the hospital, you know, because it was physically dangerous for him not to withdraw from alcohol without medical help. And he says, right there in the hospital, I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. So it's God. I believe you're good, or at least you can't mess up my life any worse than I've messed it up. Take all of me, not just my alcohol or my food. Take all of me. I place myself 100% over your care, under your care and direction. And then what did he do? He cleared away the wreckage of his past. And look how he describes it. I ruthlessly faced my sins. Now he recovered in the Oxford group and they called them sins. We call them character defects. Doesn't matter what we call them. Um, but he was ruthless. He was hard on himself. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap these days, right? Like sometimes our therapists say to us, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. Or we talk about perfectionism. So when we call someone and do a 10 step and say, oh, you know, it was my perfectionism why I did that. It's a subtle way of getting our fellows to say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. But he says, I ruthlessly faced everything. It's okay to be hard on ourselves because we know that once we ruthlessly face these things and go to God and ask him to remove it and we make our amends, we're good. We're good with God. There doesn't have to be any shame or guilt but we have to be ruthless in facing these things. And he says, once he did that and he made his amends, that's it. And he never drank again. And then he gives us some advice. He says, okay, I've got this new God consciousness within. Um, that's a promise of this program. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Common sense becomes uncommon sense. That's a result. That's a fruit of working this program, right? Um, we intuitively know what to do. And then there's a section on how to handle doubt when it arises. It says we're to sit quietly when in doubt, asking, that means praying, only for direction and strength to meet my problems as God would have me. So when we're not sure what to do, you know, we don't pick up the phone and call 17 people. First, we get quiet and ask God for direction and strength. 
I had something um, very difficult come up for me earlier in the week. And, you know, I called my sponsor and the first thing she said is, what did God say? And I'm like, oh, I called you first. And she said, you need to spend some time with God. Um, so Ebby tells him that if you do these things, um, you'll enter upon a new relationship with your creator and have the elements of a way of life which answer all your problems. And I think that's really the mission statement of this book. We get a new relationship with our creator where he's God, I'm not, and I'm surrendered to him. And by working this program, I get the elements of a way of living which answer all my problems, my marriage problems, my work problems, my kids' problems, my health problems, all my problems. This program teaches me how to deal with it. And so he sums it up um, with what's necessary to recover. He says, belief in the power of God. Notice, not the existence of God, the power of God, plus willingness, honesty, and humility. He says, these are the essential requirements. If we just have willingness, honesty, and humility without the power of God, then we're just doing a self-improvement program. I didn't have the power to improve myself. I couldn't stop eating on my own. I couldn't stop being a mean and nasty person on my own either. And Bill says, it's simple, but not easy. We have to pay a price. The destruction of self-centeredness, right? The root has to be destroyed. Chapter five of our book tells us that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. And remember, when Bill saw Ebby, he says, his roots grasped a new soil. It's like we need a root transplant to be transplanted from the garden of self into like the garden of God and our fellows. So Bill's still in the hospital and the thought came. I love how it says that, the thought came. It's like God is directing his thoughts. The thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. Well, little did he know that shortly after this, I, I think it was about six months, um, it wasn't real long. Now he's in a different place on business. He's in Ohio on business, um, just like Ebby had come to New York to see him on business. He's in Ohio on business. And that thought that he had came to fruition because just like Ebby showed up for him, he showed up for this doctor named Bob and helped him. And they in turn helped alcoholic number three and on and on thousands of people reaching forward in time to us on a Zoom meeting on a Thursday night. And I want to highlight the bottom of page 14, one of the most critical paragraphs in the big book, in my opinion. It says, faith without works is dead. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic and the compulsive eater. For if an alcoholic failed to protect and enlarge his spiritual life through, and if it were a fill in the blank, I would say through prayer and meditation. But that's not what it says. It says through work and self-sacrifice for others says, if we don't do that, we can't survive the certain trials and low spots, and we will drink again. What is a self-sacrifice? It means there's something I want to do for myself, and I give it up. I sacrifice it for the benefit of another person. So it says, if I don't enlarge my spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, um, 
maybe some people can enlarge their spiritual life through other means. Um, and I am not putting down prayer and meditation, right? There's a whole step that deals with that. Um, it's essential for our spiritual lives. But we are people who grow spiritually through work and self-sacrifice for others. That's just how God designed us. So Bill says, I went, I did this work, but sometimes I was still plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. So it does not mean once we do this work, we're going to feel like we're on cloud nine all the time. We're still going to get resentful. We're still going to have self-pity, but not as much. And he said, when we do and all other measures fail, he says, work with another alcoholic would save the day. It's a design for living that works in rough going. You know, I guess there's different kinds of cars, right? Like Fords and I don't know, Chevys. And they're made different ways. They're, you know, you probably can't take an engine from one and put it in another. They run just a little bit differently. And when God made us the addicts on his assembly line, he created us in such a way that when we're plagued with self-pity and resentment, helping others will make us feel better, will make us feel amazingly lifted up and set on our feet. So he commences with a few final things. He says, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. So they're telling us we can be happy even when things are hard even when we have parents who are going through neurological illnesses, even when we have kids who go for two months ghosting us. I've lived through that. Um, bad situations, hard situations, but they don't define me. They don't dictate my happiness. Um, and the book tells us there's scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. That's what's so beautiful about this fellowship. If we have a problem, the odds are very strong that there's somebody in this fellowship who's had the same problem and maybe has mastered it and will help you along so that you can master it and help someone else along. Page 16, last page of this chapter, he says, an alcoholic in his cups, I'm assuming means still drinking, is an unlovely creature but our job is to love them anyway. That's the measure of my spiritual experience. I can tell how rotten I'm doing when I look at someone who's still struggling and don't feel compassion for them. That's when I realize I still have a very long way to go in my spiritual development. And then they say, recovery is fun. Yes, we're earnest, but we have fun. Um, we should not be coming to meetings with long faces. We come here, it's fun. I always put my lipstick on, um, but they say, but underneath, faith has to work 24 hours a day. And we don't have to look any further for utopia because we have it, utopia, an ideal place. And he ends by saying that each day, his friend's simple talk in his kitchen, when he was still drinking, but his friend intervened. Each day that simple talk um, multiplies itself in a wide, widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Um, look at that, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Um, we are part of that legacy. And I think all of us are just like so blessed and I feel so blessed and grateful to be part of the legacy that Bill Wilson started. And with that, I pass.